Hello, and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new episodes of Star Trek. Today, we're going to look at Season 1, Episode 8 of Star Trek Prodigy, entitled Time Amuck. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Rodney Cup, the philosophy professor. And I'm Michael Merrick. I'm the media professor. You can find our announcements about new episodes and other things by following us on Twitter at Trek underscore Academy. Now, you'll find us on a lot of podcast sites, but in my experience, some of them seem to make it a little harder to find us than others. So we recommend going to anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy and finding the subscribe links there. All right. We got some really big news in the Star Trek world this week. Yes, we Uh, did. First off, uh, we learned that new episodes of Star Trek are going to be released every Thursday from now until July 7th. So we'll finish up Prodigy here and then we'll get part two of season four of Discovery. That's going to be followed by season two of Picard and then season one of Strange New Worlds. Very exciting. Yeah. Now, our listeners are going to recall that we predicted this several podcasts ago. And as it turns out, we were correct. Now we will get new episodes of Prodigy and Lower Decks sometime later this year. So plenty of Star Trek to go around. It wouldn't surprise me if they also make them pretty much back to back because that's part of the CBS and Paramount Plus business model to have lots and lots of Star Trek because they make money from it, they feel. so. But we also, the other piece of big news is that we got a full, roughly two minute long trailer for Picard season two, which premieres March 3rd. And it has Guinan in it and Q and a scene of flying super close to the sun, which I assume is a depiction of warping around the sun for time travel. Mm -hmm. And we see the La Serena crew in the year 2024 also. And Rodney, it's interesting to me, assuming that really is a warping around the sun for time travel, which we've we've seen Star Trek do before. Mm -hmm. uh, But it's interesting to me that Picard has never done that in first contact. Uh, when they went to the past to meet Zephram Cochran, they used a a chroniton burst. <laughs> and remember, Spock is the one who figured out how to warp around the sun for time travel. Right. But on the other hand, remember Picard mind melded with Spock. And so he might have a clue from that. It'll be interesting right. to see if that approach to time travel is secret within the Federation and Starfleet or if everybody knows about it and just mm-hmm. they don't do it much, we hope. <laughs> Anyway, regardless, it's clear from the trailer that something changed the timeline and our heroes are going back to try to change it. From the trailer, it's hard telling. I think a lot of people are assuming that Q makes the change as a challenge to Picard, but it's possible it's the Borg Queen or somebody else or something else. There's a lot, lots of speculation online, so I don't think we need to go into hmm. too much detail here, but trekmovie.com thinks that somehow the Borg were defeated in the past and that Picard needs to go back to rescue the Borg queen who is being held captive in 2024 as a way of putting the timeline back the way it's supposed to be. Who knows? Wow. Who knows? It's just over a month before we find out. So uh, for me personally, I'm going to kind of put the speculation on hold. You know, I just assumed that Q was responsible. That's his M.O., um, yeah, so. you know, the last time we saw him, I think was in Voyager 
And remember, he had a son then, and the very last time we saw him, he was a much more responsible parent. So I'm wondering if he might be coming to Picard to say, hey, this is why it's changed. Go fix it. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? That would be an interesting, I, whatever happens, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Anyway, before we start our discussion of this episode, we're going to give you a brief description containing spoilers, but it's an overview, not a blow-by-blow account. So if you haven't seen the episode yet, there's still a lot to see. Or if you're listening to this podcast down the road a bit, uh, this is going to refresh your memory, I'm sure. So uh, with that said, here's our uh, summary with uh, Professor Michael Merrick. Hologram Janeway is trying to get the crew to work together better, particularly after last week's first contact disaster. And finally, Dahl confesses to Janeway that they stole the Protostar, which she didn't realize up to now. Meanwhile, Protostar encounters a tachyon storm that, pardon the expression, causes goofy side effects. The crew members are each thrown into, it's like a parallel time stream. They're all still on the ship, but they're alone and they're moving at different speeds through time. Jackson only has minutes until the warp core explodes, but Rock, kind of at the other end, has almost an eternity. Janeway's program is somehow able to move back and forth between the timelines, so she helps as each of the crew does part of the solution and then passes it on to the person who's who's in the next slower timeline. It takes Rock, what Janeway says is too much time alone, to teach herself quantum science, computer engineering, and a lot of math to follow the directions the others have sent to her and ends up saving the ship. So while this is all going on, the Diviner hears from the Ferengi Nandi where Protostar is. It's way farther away than than he can get there in his ship, but he sends a command to Protostar's automatic vehicle replicator to build a copy of Dreadnought. And Janeway and Gwen are the ones that end up confronting Dreadnought. However, Dreadnought knows Chakotay's authorization code and deactivates Janeway. Gwen ends up whooshing Dreadnought out into space. But after we learn that Rock has saved the ship with the help of the others and everything's reset, so they're all together again celebrating and feeling like a real crew, that replicator starts building a new dreadnought yet another dreadnought or maybe it's kind of hard to tell either a new one or rebuilding him from some parts that somehow remained on the ship i wasn't quite clear about that but that is basically a a very quick look at this episode time amok all right so in a bit we're going to talk about the philosophy the themes and the morals of this story but there are a few things we'd like to talk about touch on before we get there and Rodney, we finally have uh, an on-screen star date for Prodigy. So we finally know from an on-screen source basically what year it's set in. And because from the uh, the log entry, star date 60715.6, okay. which places it about mid-September of the year 2383. That is the year after Lower Decks Season 2. Okay. And I think that that had been indicated in some in some news articles, but uh, uh, it's it's about five years after Voyager gets home from the Delta Quadrant. It is the year the Borg Cube 
we saw in Picard season one performs its last assimilation. It's probably about the time Picard meets Thad Riker, which is a couple of years before Picard leaves the Enterprise to coordinate the Federation efforts to evacuate the Romulan star system. So that kind of helps situate what else is going on in the Star Trek timeline when Prodigy is now set. It still leaves lots of questions, but it sheds a hint more light on it. I also want to note that the title of the episode, Time Amuck, is kind of a play on the original series episode, Amuck Time, which had nothing to do with time travel. Right. So it's about what or who is running amok, right? So in the TOS episode, it's Spock. And in this episode, it's time that's running amok. Yeah, it was Spock and the Ponfar story, which I believe was right near the beginning of season two, if I remember right. Yep. It was interesting to hear Janeway's story about Apollo 13 to Mm -hmm. inspire the ingenuity of the crew. Now, if you know the Apollo 13 story, Certainly, some of the ingenuity was certainly the astronauts that were in the uh, the damaged spacecraft. A lot of the ingenuity came from the team on the ground that came up with solutions and then transmitted them to uh, to the, the astronauts. But it certainly was a, a massive effort of ingenuity and, and creativity and use of very sparse resources. Yeah, and I thought that warp matrix that they built looked a lot like the carbon dioxide scrubber uh, in the movie Apollo 13, which was constructed by people on the ground and transmitted to the crew on the ship. Um, they, they had a similar shape at least. And of course, Dal had to build the warp matrix out of parts found on the protostar, which was similar to the engineering problem faced by the Apollo 13 mission. They had to build the scrubber with only what they had aboard Aquarius and Odyssey. And yes, it certainly seems like a, like an inspiration, particularly given that they actually mentioned Apollo 13 yeah. in, uh, in, in the script. The scenes each time they switched to the next timeline reminded me a bit uh, of the figures floating on the screen as Kirk and company traveled back in time to save the whales in the voyage home. I know in that movie, it was meant to be metaphorical. I have to admit, I never really liked that scene. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I I was reminded of the very same thing, Michael. And I remember when I first saw Star Trek IV, I thought that time travel scene was out of place because it was just so freaky and weird. Yeah. I think so. They certainly didn't have the effects budget to do what we're apparently going to see in Picard for time travel warping around the sun. Right. And so, you know, I think they chose the alternative to not blowing the special effects budget of a (laughs) a metaphorical portrayal. And I wonder if the fans, uh, if they knew the fans would think it was strange, but I have to say that kind of the, the parallel scenes in this prodigy episode didn't bother me as much. Maybe it's because it seemed a little bit closer rather than bodies floating in space and babbling brooks. I don't know. Yeah. It didn't bother me either uh, for whatever reason. And I remember, didn't the first Star Trek movie go over budget? I think it might have. And then the movies that were made after that, they were very concerned about keeping in budget. Um, So they didn't have a lot of money to just spend willy-nilly on special effects. You know, for the studio, Star Trek 
they make Star Trek to make money. That's the fundamental reason. And then all of the creativity has to work within that context. And the studio provides a budget over many millions of dollars. And certainly by today's standards, but even by standards back then, the budgets were were tight and they had to yeah. they had to do what they could to make good use of them. Yeah. So I don't know if I told you this, Michael, but I, I recently watched Don't Look Up on Netflix with my family uh, and was somewhat traumatized by it. <laughs> and this episode reminded me of it. Now, let me just explain this. I, it is a coincidence, I'm sure. But there's a scene in this week's episode in which Janeway tells Dow that there's been this temporal catastrophe and she needs him to help save everyone on board. And Dow just seems kind of uninterested because he's playing this video game. And that reminded me of the lack of concern about the approaching comet in Don't Look Up, that movie. And also, I suppose, uh, the lack of concern uh, many folks have about the climate crisis we find ourselves in today. Now, for Dahl, it didn't seem to be affecting him immediately. So he didn't really pay that much attention. And I think that's to a certain extent, that's human nature. It's a natural inclination. But as Star Trek often tells us, leaders need to be concerned about the good of the entire group, not just the leader's personal needs or, or things that benefit the leader. So this scene is part of Dahl's character arc where yep. you know he, he seems to have learned this lesson more than once, but he's not, he maybe knows it intellectually, but he's not completely making it operational as, in his personality yet. I've got a couple of other notes. Mm-hmm. The coupler that Dreadnought shows Gwyn how to find that really is able to connect the, uh, the gadget that Rock has built into the, the warp system looks just like the electrical plug on my dryer. <laughs> yeah. You know, my laundry room. It looks right. a lot like it. Just, just saying. And uh, another interesting to me when Rock is alone, saying good night to the other empty bunks. Remember, Dahl has quarters of his own, but everyone else is in dormitory style living with bunk beds and things. Mm-hmm. I got a vibe of the Waltons. And uh, Rodney, <laughs> I don't know if you remember the Waltons or not. It was a family oriented, yeah, family oriented American TV show. It was on the air for nine years. And they, they also made some TV made for TV movies after the series ended. But in that show, the multiple children always say goodnight to each other. You know, goodnight, John Boy, goodnight, Aaron. And um, so I kind of got that vibe here. Of course, the Waltons was on CBS, like Star Trek is right now. My dad, when I was growing up, my dad decided what would be on the television. And we never watched that show, but I did catch bits and pieces of it over the years. It is interesting in this episode that Rock says she cannot hug the Janeway hologram. Now, as we've seen often in in Star Trek, at least in the holodeck, holograms usually have force fields, so they have solidity. And uh, the holographic doctor in Voyager did too. You know, he could pick up medical instruments and do things. But other than Discovery and the holographic doctor who had a special gadget to help him do that. And I've been trying to think, have we ever seen the Janeway hologram specifically operate controls on the bridge consoles? You know, I mean, that's a good question. I don't think so. Um, 
she seems to be dispensing advice all the time. But I, I guess this has to be a different kind of hologram than we've seen before, you know, unlike the EMH, because, well, she's only an advisor and the crew is going to have to build the warp matrix. I, I guess if Janeway does it, then we wouldn't have much of a show. Well, yeah. I mean, back on the murder planet, didn't she like make Protostar come back for the crew? I think she was sort of piloting at that point, but not sitting at the controls. I, I don't know. In, in a way, I think Janeway is like Zora. Zora is the computer, basically. Mm -hmm. Janeway isn't quite the same, but essentially resides in the computer and maybe does have the ability to have the ship do things directly, not needing to, to press physical buttons. It's like your computer being able to do things without having to move the mouse. I was just interested that Rock can't hug Janeway. Yeah. And this whole business about the relationship between Janeway and the computer uh, of the ship, it's not clear. I, I don't think it's clear. Maybe they need to clear that up. We may find out, or it may just be one of the givens that we're supposed to assume. Well, I think uh, it's time to turn the page now and talk about the underlying meaning of this episode. What are the messages that the writers and the producers wanted us to take away? And Rodney, I think the, the overt, the primary message is the we're all in this together and we have to trust each other mm -hmm. at specific statement. Uh, and it is a good message for any time, certainly for the divisiveness in the world today. I agree. Also, I would say, you know, when this episode begins, they're not working together at all. Again, they're or, not working yes. together. <laughs> yeah, I, they, they can't even solve this fox chicken grain riddle. And Dal even goes so far as to say that it's impossible, which is absurd. Uh, but in the end, they do all work together to save the protostar, even though they are in the different timelines. So we're seeing that theme again here, this idea that a diverse group of people can come together to solve problems and achieve great things. Another good message for our time. And we've seen this theme uh, since the season began, I think. Yeah, and it is very clearly an overt message here. I think also in this episode, though, Gwen's message to Rock about essentially apologizing for pushing Rock to be something she's not, namely security chief. I think that's also an important message and maybe even a more important message than the, you know, we're all in this together, we have to trust each other message. Parents so often push kids to do the things the parents want and don't let their children make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, on top of that, Janeway tells Rock that whatever happens with the warp core, Janeway is proud of her. Mm -hmm. And it's making the effort, not the success. I mean, the message there is it's making the effort, not whether there's success or not, which is what's important. And that's so different from what some parents do. Now that's a little bit different in different cultures, but we hear mm -hmm. the stereotypes all the time of parents pushing their kids to do that and all these multiple activities and athletics and in, in some cases, pressure for grades and all that. And I think that Janeway's message about it's making the effort, not success or failure, and being proud of what you do is a message for the young people in the Nickelodeon audience. You and I both watch as, as older fans, but this is a Nickelodeon series. And yeah. the children can't necessarily change how their parents are, but they can maybe know from this 
episode message that it's not necessarily the only way things can be. Yeah, it's uh, the opposite of the, uh, what is it that winning is the only thing? Oh, that was Vince Lombardi, wasn't it? I think so. Winning's not the most important thing. It's the only thing. It's something like that. And and it's it's just not, I do like this aspect of the show. And it connects with a perennial Star Trek theme, you know, autonomy or self-determination. You decide for yourself what your life is going to be in accordance with your own values. And Rock needs that. Now, she's young, maybe not entirely autonomous, but still, that's her decision to make. Um, And that's why they're all on the protostar in the first place, right? They had to escape Tars Lamora. They were all treated like disposable tools there. And that was even Gwyn's situation. (laughs) And she was the diviner's daughter. She said in this episode that she had been told what to do and who to be her whole life. And she apologized for doing the same thing to Rock. So it, this ties into this, you know, longstanding and important Star Trek theme. And like you it, say, maybe the most important theme in this yeah. episode. I think it certainly does. However, I need to point out, there's a little bit of a mixed message here. Because after Gwyn apologized for pushing Rock to do something she doesn't want to be, mm-hmm. um, Gwyn turns around and very bluntly tells Rock what she needs to do to save the ship. This is what you have to do. What all of her other fellow crew members need her to do. So it does seem to be a little, a little bit of a mixed message. Um, maybe it's not apparent, but it's it's a peer pressure type thing also. Now, Rock rises to the occasion and yeah. accomplishes something she would never believe that she was capable of. So that's, again, that's a very positive message. And they explained away Janeway not being able to help because Rock had to make 276 tries to rebuild Janeway's program. So good message. There was... When you analyze deeply, there is a little bit of a mixed message there. But uh, when put a little pressure on and Rock certainly rose to the occasion. Yeah. And I just one last note about Rock, if I may here. She spends who knows how long alone on the protostar trying to save it. We don't know. But it was a very long time. And I think Nandy, she makes a brief appearance in this episode, is kind of a nice foil for her. Nandy appears to give the diviner the protostar's location. And of course, when that happens, we see her alone (laughs) aboard her ship, the Damsel. So we've got both Nandy and Rock alone on their respective ships. But Nandy here is acting only in her own self-interest, whereas Rock is motivated to save her ship and the crew, acting selflessly. I thought that was an interesting contrast. So let's take a step back and think a little bit about our final thoughts about the episode. And uh, Rodney, I've told you before, but years and years ago, it was during the next generation era, I defined what I considered to be a stereotypical bad Star Trek formula plot. (laughs) And that formula plot is technobabble space phenomenon causes goofy side (laughs) effects. Now, occasionally this has been used for a good story like Yesterday's Enterprise. All right. Great episode. One of the best. Yeah, certainly. But usually the formula leads to, in my opinion, bad scripts. And Mm -hmm. I got to say, Time Amok is based on the Technobabble Space Phenomenon Causes Goofy Side Effects plot formula. Yeah. In the real world, 
Well, tachyons don't really exist in the real world. They're kind of hypothetical, not even theorized, but hypothetical particles that if they existed would move faster than light. And there is no evidence that they exist whatsoever. In Star Trek, we know that tachyons do exist because they've been talked about before, but storms in regular space made up of faster than light particles doesn't really make any sense. I know in some previous Star Trek series, the writers didn't even have to come up with their own technobabble. Instead, they would just write the word tech in parentheses at the point in the script, and someone on the production staff would fill it in later, like, Captain, I believe it is a tech that merits further exploration. Yeah, I, um, I've heard about this before. Yeah. I have also had people tell me that goofy is not the right adjective. Again, it was way back in the next generation era. It was about the time the Enterprise was turned into an Aztec temple due to Technobabble and lots oh, of yeah. other strange things. There were amongst many really wonderful episodes. There were a bunch of candidly stinkers. And so I chose the word goofy to put kind of a negative spin on this broad category of plot devices, even though, as I said, it occasionally does result in a, in a good episode. This was a pretty good episode. The Technobabble was pretty heavy duty, but certainly very strong messages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I also wanted to note, I think it was last week, I talked about the closing credits and I was looking at them again this week and it struck me how much diversity there is in the names of the production team, not just the voice actors, but really all across the production team. Now, it's often hard to tell what the true ethnicity of a person is just from their name. And while I do see names that appear to be of Western European origin, which is kind of what historically we've seen in Hollywood, Hollywood names. I'm also seeing a lot of uh, names that appear to be Hispanic and Asian, Eastern European names, and some others I'm not even sure about. Now, mm -hmm. admittedly, the names of the executive producers and the really senior leadership tend to be more Western in their, in their heritage. But I do like seeing at least what appears to be pretty significant diversity in the overall team behind Prodigy. Right. You know, um... Star Trek is about diversity for diversity's sake. A lot of people don't know that, but it's true. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's all the way back to the original series. It's a very important message. So it's nice to see that in, in the behind the scenes part of the episode, not just the overt Absolutely. stories. We have two more episodes in the season of Prodigy. So by the episode after next, we'll know how the season ends, including whether the story kind of resolves itself with a natural ending or whether there's going to be a cliffhanger. And I go back and forth. My current guess, which could change any time, I should say, but my current guess is that they will come to a resolution of the story, at least for now. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll have like, you know, with this, with this new version of Dreadnought being produced in, in secret on the ship, maybe we'll have a couple of more episodes of mayhem with him. And then, I mean, once they figure it out, they should just change the ship's access codes and, <laughs> and get away again, which is kind of what they did for the mid-season hiatus. So I'm, I'm suspecting maybe that's what's going to happen, but it's hard telling. It is. I'd like that myself. I, I don't want a big cliffhanger at the end of this season or this first half of the season, whichever it is. In the interim, you know, the Diviner may find a way to bring the Protostar back to Tars Lamora. 
I, I don't really know, but you know, it seems to me they're so far away now that if he doesn't, I think they just might escape the diviner's clutches for good. I mean, it's just one more proto-warp jump in the right direction. I think that's all it would take. Right, Michael? Yeah, although they established, I think, that the protostar engine may not be working at the moment. It needs repair. Oh, so they're, they're fix that. kind of a little plot device. But, uh, but supposing they do get away, right? The galaxy is gigantic. And they're in the gamma quadrant, which they don't know much about or we don't know much about as the audience, I think. Yeah. So the writers, they they would have no trouble, I think, finding new challenges or threats for the crew to face. And we might even have a Voyager type situation in which their goal ultimately is to get to Federation space. And maybe that's what the show will be about. Maybe not the best thing we've seen that before, but that is where Jankum and Rock want to go anyways, to the Federation. Yeah, I imagine that the story of the Diviner is the diviner is not just going to be written out of the out of the plot. I imagine that it won't be finished until the end of the series. But I'd be happy if the diviner is just an occasional recurring threat, maybe a couple times a season, like the aliens were in in the X Files, rather than almost every week. So we'll we'll see how they approach it. You know, another thing that just occurred to me is that Dreadnought does appear in the opening credits. You know, now that I think about it, I mean, that's additional evidence that, you know, we're going to keep seeing him at least. Um, and we still have a lot to learn about the diviner and his species and his interest in the protostar. There are a lot of mysteries still here. And, and uh, you know, if, if these narrative gaps aren't filled, I would be disappointed. Well, and they've known for some time that they were going to be doing a second season. And uh, so I, I don't know. It could be that the that this season's finale was all set before they found that out, mm -hmm. which would suggest more of a, at least a temporary resolution. Mm -hmm. Or if they found out soon enough, that that would facilitate a cliffhanger if they decide to do that, if they decide that's right for the Nickelodeon audience. And Lots of things that we still need to learn and probably will learn more about in the next uh, next couple of weeks or so. So thank you to our audience for joining us this week. Next time, Prodigy continues with uh, the penultimate episode of this season. That means next to last. And of course, we'll also be here when Discovery returns. Right now, you can keep track of our new episodes and other announcements on our Twitter feed. That's at Trek underscore Academy. Or you can subscribe directly at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you again next time.